going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am lucky to have Greg Knuckles with me on the podcast, host of the Stronger by Science podcast. And you do a whole lot more than that, but we'll, we'll just start with that and we'll let you give yourself a little bit of an intro. Um, no, I, I think that's plenty. Uh, my, my name is Greg. I, I lift weights. Um, sometimes I write about lifting weights and uh, sometimes I also uh, coach people uh, in, in ways related to lifting weights. Nice. That's that's about it. Part-time home chef, part-time bread maker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I find that that content on your page to be to be a nice a nice change up. You recently you were posting about some protein bread. Why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about how this went? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I really like sandwiches. I, I think they're potentially my favorite food, um, but I also don't like. I don't know, like really, really lean sandwiches, you know, like you can, you can just get like regular bread, uh, put like no mayonnaise or no cheese on it, uh, and just like stack it up with cold cuts and yeah, like it'll, it'll have fine macros, but like that is fundamentally not a good sandwich, you know? Um, and so the, the sticking point with a lot of sandwiches is like, Hey, if, if you got the carbs from the bread and there's any fatty component to it whatsoever, in order to make the macros work, you just need to put so much meat on it that it's no longer you're messing a, with the ratio. Yeah. It's, it's no longer a, a hedonically pleasing sandwich anymore. It's just, it's just a, a two inch tall stack of meat of lean that turkey to have bread around it. Which like that's that's not a good sandwich. Um, so you know the the thing that has to be sorted out is like, hey, how how can we get some more protein in here somewhere that doesn't just have to come from stacking a bunch of meat onto it? And the the logical uh, vector for that is adding protein to the bread because that's I mean that's the next largest component or potentially the largest component. And so I've, I've been messing around with protein bread recipes for a while, and I went pretty far down the rabbit hole experimenting with uh, replacing um, some of the flour with casein. And there, there are a lot of good things about casein. Like if you've ever done like protein baking before and, and done it with whey protein, you probably found out like it doesn't work particularly well, especially for things you bake all the way. So something like, you know, like a mug brownie or something that is just kind of like slightly warmed through and still kind of gooey, like yeah, whey, whey can work. But if you're trying to bake bread, um, the, the way itself doesn't go into solution or like hydrate all that well. And so when you, when you bake something, it kind of winds up with like a slightly bitter flavor and gritty texture. Like it's it's not that appealing. But casein, on the other hand, uh, does behave a lot like regular flour. Like it, it hydrates the same way. Um, and yeah, it just behaves pretty similarly in, in doughs and batters. And so you can't replace all of the flour with casein. Otherwise, the bread won't have any structure. But you can replace a lot and wind up with, with some pretty decent bread. Um, so I, I experienced experimented with that a lot and and had some success but the issue is like casein does still have a distinct flavor and there there really wasn't a way to cover that up which is fine like it's not a it's not like an, an objectively unappealing flavor but like you you'd still bite it and be like this is protein bread like this isn't regular bread um so recently i i uh diverted my experimentation to mess around more with soy flour because like 
soybeans have have a fair bit of protein in them. Uh, and then just adding extra gluten to replace the, the gluten that is no longer there from replacing some of the flour with soy flour. Um, and it's great. Uh, it's, I mean, it, it tastes just like, so if, if you've ever had like raw soybeans, like, you know, they have, yeah, just like a kind of distinct raw bean flavor. Um, but when they're, when they're baked, they have like the same flavor notes as just like whole wheat flour does. Um, so yeah, the, it, it comes out tasting just like a, like a multi-grain loaf um, that, yeah, it does doesn't doesn't taste like distinctly proteiny at all like it it sets up well toasts well slices well um like you you could you could fool people into thinking that it is just regular bread whereas you can't get that with like the the casein based ones um so yeah i'm i'm going to keep experimenting with it but i'm i'm extremely excited about it Funny, that was not actually in any way. But P.S. for those of you guys listening, this is like literally has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. However, actually, funny enough, I, I, I'm going to circle back around to this. Like, um, we will be discussing, basically today's discussion is going to be based on a segment that Greg did on his podcast, which is the Stronger by Science podcast that I'll link in the description. And it's a, a wonderful podcast. And the title is, title of the segment is Popular Weight Loss Advice That May Do More Harm Than Good. And we'll add a ton of context to that sort of like subtitle there. Um, but one of the things that we will discuss is kind of this idea of like eat bland foods. And one of the ones that I that I actually will tease right now is just this idea of like healthifying foods or like proteinifying foods and where that may or may not have a place and that where that like maybe just in your experience, because I think that there's there's been people who've come on the podcast and have had like wildly different opinions on that sort of thing. And so be interested to get your insight on that when we do get to that point. But give us a quick background on who is Greg? What is, you know, you told you write about lifting, you lift. Um, but maybe we can segue that into basically where this segment came from for you. So a little bit about your own weight loss journey. I think that there's obviously a lot that you pull from from there. Uh, maybe set the scene as far as like how this segment came about and how you became excited to talk about some of this stuff. Sure. Yeah. So I've um, I, I've spent most of my life as a as a as a bigger guy. Um, I, I hit 200 pounds before I hit five feet tall when I was when I was a, a little tyke, which is uh, fairly round. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so I, I spent a, a good chunk of my teenage years relatively lean just cause I, I played every sport under the sun and, um, yeah, just, I, I was just on my feet and so active that it, it made it easier to control my weight. But then as, as soon as I got done with sports, um, there was just kind of a steady upward trend of, of my weight for like my my entire adult life, essentially. Um, and, and I don't know, like a, a, a lot of things come easy to me, but weight management just never did. Um, and uh, so, yeah, when, when I got out of grad school, I was like nearly 280 after like I, I, I had spent a good chunk of time in kind of like the 240, 250 range. And since 242 is a is a weight class in powerlifting, as long as I could tell myself, like, yeah, I'm I'm within comfortable cutting distance at 242. I was like, yeah, I'm I'm fine. You know, like I don't don't really need to worry about this. But then when I saw like the the biggest number I saw on the scale was like 278. I was like, I'm I'm not going up to 275. And this is this is no longer like credibly comfortable cutting distance to 242 anymore. Is that the next um, weight class in is you're saying that 275 would have been like your next weight class? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um so I was like, yeah, I, I don't 
I'm I'm not going to do that. Um, and also, I, I was just I don't know, like like starting to get a little bit older, and um, so I'll, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you exactly what happened. Um, so when I when I was getting closer to thirty, I started thinking about like, hey, what what do I like to do physically? And you know, I, I like lifting weights, I like powerlifting, um, but I also just like playing other sports and like being good at other sports. Um, like that's, that is something that's fun to me. And and I started realizing like, okay, like I'm, my twenties are about to be behind me. Uh, so I, I maybe what have, if you want to stretch the definition about a decade of youth ish, uh, uh, physical capacity left, like, you know, you don't, you don't see many guys in their like mid forties with an insane vertical. Um, so I was like, you know what, like, at least for the next decade, like I, I just want to lose some weight and get faster again and jump better again and have better lateral quickness again. Um, and, you know, keep lifting, but like spend some more time on the basketball court, um, spend some more time playing tennis, just just like doing other things to to enjoy my my kind of somewhat youthful physical capabilities while I was, while I still have them. And then, you know, if I want to, if I want to go like full bore into lifting again, when I'm pushing 40, who knows, like may maybe I will, maybe I won't. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of a wake up call. Like, you know, I, I was just bigger than I needed to be for lifting. Uh, and, and lifting had always been my excuse to be so big in the first place. Um, and there were just other physical things I wanted to do that, uh, required me being smaller or, or at least that I would be much better at if I was smaller. So I was like, okay, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna finally buckle down and, and try to lose a fair bit of weight. Um, so like I, I had tried to do that previously, but it was largely unsuccessful. Um, and, and also just like somewhat half-hearted because it, it was like, Hey, if, if I try to get down to 200, but don't like, that's fine. I can still compete at 242, like whatever, you know? <laughs> So it was just, I, I finally hit a, a confluence of life events that I was like, okay, like now, now it does actually really make sense to try to try to uh, commit myself to this and, and lose a fair, like a, a pretty fair bit of weight. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what that that's what kind of got me going down this road. And, and since then, I'm down about 60 pounds. Um, <clears throat> so from uh, just below 280 to just below 220. Have you found that that did open those doors for you to go and play some more tennis? And, and not that you couldn't play them, but just make that more of a uh, something you could do with a better proficiency? It, it did for a while. Um, right now, I'm dealing with some hip issues that uh, that are that are uh, making that more difficult, but that's fine. I, I mean, it, that was mostly just me being stupid. Like once I got down into like the 230s and I was like, hey, now I can start playing the style of basketball I want to play and not just kind of like chubby guy basketball. Cause like, those are, those are different. Those sports. are different like, things. Like you, you, you play them on the same court, but uh, you know, like my, the, the game I like to play is, is a very um, like almost just like violent game. Like uh, when I, when I played before, uh, like I, I had a good three point shot, but like, a lot of a lot of what made me a, a good basketball player is very like a very fast first step and really good lateral quickness like like and, and a good vertical like I was a I, I was a pretty dangerous slasher um 
and slasher is not chubby guy basketball. <laughs> and so <laughs> once I started realizing like, hey, I've I've lost enough weight that I can start playing the way I used to more, more similar to how I used to when I was like 16, 17. Uh, I think I dove into it a, a bit too aggressively. And, uh, you know, e even though I, I could technically do it, some of some of the soft tissues that you would want to have uh, been been built up and developed over like months or years of of moving like that uh, hadn't been. So, yeah, I, I think you know, just, just too much too soon, um, which I, I know better, but I also don't like once I get on the court, like I'm, I'm going to go all out, like no matter what. Yep. There's a, there's a concept or whatever, something that we talk about sometimes on the podcast. This is this idea of like fitness being a means, not an end. And I think for a long time, it's an end for a lot of us. And, and I played soccer pretty competitively for a long time, basketball as well. Love to, mm -hmm. the way you were describing it was like, I was never like most elegant on the floor. Like I, I could shoot. Okay. But like very physical, gonna outrun, good first step, good, gonna, gonna like outrun you, out hustle you, a lot of body banging down below. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm not super tall, but just definitely was like gonna be on the more physical side, less of like the elegant side. Um, and then, you know, as everything happens, you know, you don't become a professional athlete. And so you seek like alternative competitive physical endeavors. And, you know, naturally some people stumble into the gym and take that up, whether it's powerlifting, I was maybe a little bit more on like hypertrophy side of things, but fitness itself became an end. And it was just like fitness for fitness's sake, or even the, the, the end was like aesthetics in this case, yours was like strength, let's say, but fitness within its own bubble as an end, not as like a means to go on and do things in our life. And I think I'm 31, we're a similar age. I don't know if it's you know, happens of the same arc along somebody's timeline. But I, I think uh, I did about a two year gain, probably the, the best gain. I'd ever, like I say best, like most concise scientifically, like with the research, right rate of gain here. Um, training was on point two years, went from like 190 to like 185 to like 220. And mm -hmm. it was a very productive muscle building period of time. I enjoyed my life, learned a ton. Definitely like I had done gains in the past, but this is like very concise. I moved to Texas at the end of that game. I'm originally from New Jersey. My fiance and I, now fiance, moved to Texas. And and day one, I was like, what can I do to like meet people? And I hadn't played soccer probably since college at all, maybe just like kicking a ball around. And it's really big in Texas. Everyone's outside 12 months of the year. And so I was like, all right, let me join soccer. Day one, I am gassed. I am on the field, haven't touched the ball. First day I played was a game and I'm just destroyed. I, I needed a break after one run. I took myself off. And I just thought like, Again, like relatively speaking, that I was like, this is this is the end. This is part of my true ends for the long term that I want. And whether that's like forever, I want to be playing super competitive soccer. But at this current point in my life on this arc here, this is something I want to be doing. This is my end. I want to play soccer. Maybe it's I want to hike. I want to be able to, you know, eventually it's like play with your grandkids and like all these things that happen at different stages. But for me, that was like all of a sudden trumped the fitness or hypertrophy or aesthetic side as an end in and of itself. And like immediately, not immediately dropped a bunch of weight, but recalibrated what was important and came back down to like that 190, 195, where I just felt more athletic, felt like I, whatever. What matters is I got to a place where I rearranged some priorities and was able to then take that as a motivation to, in this case, lose weight, but just get to a point where I was able to use fitness as a means to do something yeah. else, um, which I think happens for everybody at some time and not to ramble too long for, cause there are going to be people listening to this that are in that state of like fitness or fitness sake, like fitness to want, I want to get jacked. I want to get strong. I'm not poo pooing that because I think that there's like an arc to that journey. There's like a natural progression of like, there's a period you spend there that allows you almost to come out on the other side. Not, not, not that you can't do this before, but almost like with a luxury of, 
I understand how to maintain. I understand how to do this well. Uh, and you know, maybe I have to go to that extreme for some period of time to come out on the other side. So I'm not like poo-pooing those like six, seven, eight years where it was like super duper important to me, but it certainly has transitioned, transitioned out of that. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's always just a question of n- knowing what you want to do, but also just kind of being in touch with why you want to do it. Um, and, and I do think that that's a reason why, uh, why a lot of people do lose motivation. Um, cause you know, like your, your kind of underlying motivations for exercise or fitness might shift over time. Um, but if you, if you don't really check in on that too often and, and you just kind of assume that your kind of underlying motivations are the same as they've always been, you can find yourself doing the same type of training you've previously been doing that used to be fun and rewarding. And now you're finding it not quite as fun and rewarding anymore. And you're less motivated and you're like, ah, shit, like, why, why is that? And then you kind of check in and you're like, oh, like five years ago, the thing driving me is like, I wanted to look like a Greek God, like not me, but like someone else like, Hey, like that is, that is very much what I wanted. That is what I was training for. I was accomplishing it. I felt good. And you know, now, uh, like that's still cool, but like that, that just doesn't drive me as much anymore, but I'm still training as if that is still very much what drives me. And so, you know, it, it, it is good to, to check in, with yourself, when you feel yourself, uh, maybe start losing motivation and, and things that used to be fun aren't as fun anymore. It's, it's good to check in with yourself and say like, Hey, why did this used to be fun? And why is it not quite as fun and motivating anymore? And, and often it is just because kind of those, those underlying motivations have shifted and you didn't really detect that shift as it was happening. I find that, th- that, so basically you're saying, Hey, let's, let's, uh, make sure that we're recalibrating here and there and just taking stock of like, does what I do match with what I want? And that can change and will change. And I think almost like giving yourself grace and, and, and accepting that it will change almost that it, almost that it should change. What I find in practice is that it, that people find it difficult to let, I'm going to use the phrase kind of like, let those dreams die or like, let those goals die. And I'm saying it that way, almost like, like, sometimes people find that letting go of those things, there's like a guilt where like, I should still want that. Like society, either society or previous trauma or previous me or people in my life, they're making me feel like I should want that thing. And it's almost like, it's okay if those goals changed. Okay to let the part of you that was like, I really want a flat stomach and a six pack. It's okay to let that part of you be in the past or, or, or theoretically just like put it on the back burner. Maybe there's like, it's, it's cyclical in some way, but I feel like there's a lot of guilt attached to like, I had wanted this for so long. And even particularly for people who don't, fully accomplish what they think that they were set they set out for uh, they, there's a struggle of like letting go of that almost like I, sh- I didn't accomplish it or I should still want this based on external like stimuli that I'm getting uh and so I, I find that to be I, I would just want to say out into the the world out into the ether that you know if you're feeling that way and you are recalibrating you are realizing that something has changed like that that's normal and it's okay to like let that old version of you that wanted x to like appreciate that person but to let that be in the past so to speak yeah, for, for sure. And, and I, I, I think that's pretty generalizable as well. Like you, you see that in like relationships, like, Hey, this used to be a good relationship and now it's not anymore, but like, it would feel like a betrayal to, to break up with them or like, Hey, like I, I used to have this like business idea that used to be going well, but now it's not anymore, but it used to be. So maybe I should keep doing it. Uh, but you know, maybe a, a pivot is is the right thing to do. Yeah. But I, I do think, 
I, I do think just kind of the the natural state of doing things is is inertia. Like once you get once you get going down a road, uh, it is just less friction to keep going down that road, even if you probably should have taken a turn five miles ago. And you can still take a turn and get get on a new track that might be more fun and productive. Um, but yeah, it it does it, it certainly takes less effort um, and less thought, and and it's less friction just to keep going with something that that used to be great and now still isn't terrible. You know, like I, I think that uh, when when something goes from like great to good to decent, uh, the the default is just to keep going with it. Like it it has to get bad enough for people to be like, okay, like now I now I definitely need to make that shift. But I, I think that in in a lot of different areas of life, if you're willing to take that turn, make that pivot when great gets down to decent, like before it gets all the way down to terrible. Um, I, I think a lot of people would just be a lot happier and, and a lot better off. I'm a big fan of the quote, the good is the enemy of the great. And just like that, that, that is basically sums that up where you're just like, yeah, you know, it's not bad enough. And relationship is like the ultimate analogy for that. A lot of times people are like stuck in like a pretty good relationship and they're like, it's not bad enough for me to get out. But you know, if I really wanted something great, then it would be, you know, I would need to take that turn. Um, all right. So we're going to talk basically today. Again, the topic is popular weight loss advice that may do more harm than good. And these are some of the things you had mentioned about four of them, which we will go through and we'll kind of bounce back and forth. Um, but I want to set the scene a little bit. You can add whatever context you feel necessary, but the stuff that you're going to be talking about of like this popular weight loss advice that maybe does more harm than good within certain contexts, we're not talking about bullshit. We're not talking about detoxes. We're not talking about uh, Octavia. We're not talking about like cucumber diet. We're not talking about dumb shit that Probably does more harm not, than not good. Talking, not talking about what? Did you say Octavia? Op, Octavia? Or is that what that is? Is like some like a, is like a? Is no, I've, I've never even I've never even heard of this. What what is it? Octavia is like super duper duper low calorie diet, like meal plan oh. uh, based diet. I, I just googled it to get like what they said that it is. Um, yeah, basically a super mega low calorie, uh, fastest growing health and wellness weight loss strategies. A lot of red flags uh, from a marketing perspective, but it basically just like a some new fad basically that's going around here. It's like a meal prep, uh, not meal prep, but um, like a meal plan and some sort of like uh, algorithmic uh, coaching alongside of it as well. Ah, uh, gotcha. Uh, yeah, I, I had never even heard of that. You're like Optimus Prime diet. You're like, what is that? Like, yeah. No, I I, I thought you said Octavia, like actress Octavia Butler. Gotcha, like, gotcha, what? gotcha. No, no, no. What, what is she up to? Yeah, what is she up to? Yeah, uh, okay. yeah. But again, we're not talking about this sort of stuff. We're talking about like advice that you know maybe you've heard as a listener that you're like, oh, that that sounds like generally something I've heard to be a good idea, and and how these things just might not pan out as well when we're talking about the like get healthy and stay healthy crowd and might be more applicable to the extreme side of things. And so let's start with, um, let's move into this discussion, kind of just talk about maybe what are some of the main characteristics of a healthy diet. If we're looking like broad strokes, what are the, what are some of the things that we should be looking for when we're kind of thinking, hey, what's the optimal considerations for me when it comes to an eating pattern long-term? Yeah, uh, so I mean, the the for so as, as far as just like general like diet advice for health goes like it's it's a lot of the stuff you'd hear from your doctor like make sure you're getting in your fiber eating your fruits and veggies um and and then i mean really beyond that uh it's largely a question of just like how much you need to eat to be the the general size you want to or need to to be for optimal health um 
And, and so like, I, I think a lot of people uh, find themselves in trouble because it's not, it's not too hard to kind of like draw up a diet for yourself that in a vacuum looks like it checks all of the right boxes um, that in practice you just hate and, and you're never going to be able to stick with long-term. So uh, the, the final key component is it needs to be able to support your goals and get you where you want to go. Um, but you also need to be able to, to stick with it long-term. Like, uh, the the popular factoid that people throw out there and and factoid about factoid factoid means something that's that's wrong uh like i don't think a lot of people know that like I, I think a lot of people just use it like the word factoid to be synonymous with fun fact but it's something that sounds like a fun fact but is actually wrong um and and so the the popular factoid that people throw out is that like 98% of diets fail um which like doesn't seem true based on the research um it, it, although it depends to some extent on like how you define success, but like uh, the, the research looking at the success of, of weight loss over time finds that if you define success to be like maintaining at least five to 10% of the original weight loss over a period of years after an initial diet, it seems like closer to 80 to 90% of diets fail, which isn't that much better than 98%, but it's, it is it is a slightly better number. But anyway, uh, you know, baseline, uh, a, a lot of diets do fail. Like a lot of people, it, it's the number of successful weight loss stories stretch into the millions. It's not hard to find. Um, the number of successful weight loss and ongoing successful weight maintenance stories are, are quite a bit rarer. And, and I think one of the major reasons for that is... A lot of the approaches that people take to lose weight in the first place um, generally involve doing things that aren't going to be sustainable for years and years and years. So it's kind of like the assumption is, hey, like I'm I'm going to just just do whatever I need to do to lose weight in the first place. It's not going to be particularly sustainable. But then once I've lost the weight, then I can figure out what's a what's a good sustainable way to eat to maintain this weight loss long term um but that's a like that that is going to be something that takes practice um it's it's it, it doesn't come as easy to people as i think they expect it will um so then it, it, i uh, like people just find themselves on like a roller coaster of of yo-yo dieting like they do lose 20 30 pounds and then their attempt to maintain it goes poorly. They gain most or all of it back. They do some sort of like crash diet or really restrictive diet again, lose the weight again, gain it all back. And like that, that's, that's how a lot of people spend most of their adult life. Um, and so I, I think a better approach uh, for losing the weight in the first place is not just saying like, hey, how, how can I get 20, 30 pounds off just period and more about how can I start shifting my diet and lifestyle such that I can lose 20 to 30 pounds uh, or, you know, however much you're trying to lose. Um, and then once I get there, the only real change I need to make to my lifestyle is just, I can eat a little bit more now. Um, but like the, the kind of core of the diet itself, you're, you're not going to have to change it because you're not doing something that you wouldn't be able to maintain long-term. Um, is similar with like the exercise, you know, if 
like anyone, well, not anyone, but a, a lot of people can say, hey, I'm good. I'm just going to try to lose as much weight as possible in four months. And so like for these four months, I'm going to go to the gym like three hours a day every day and just like really, really kill it and hate every second of it. But like number on the scale is going down. So I feel good. But then once that number on the scale is not going down anymore, because you've you've got where you want to go, like you don't you don't have that same positive reinforcement reinforcing you to do this thing that you didn't want to do in the first place. And so now you're just going to stop doing it. Um, so it, it sets you up to not not really build healthy habits and a healthy lifestyle around the weight you're trying to get to and, and maintain. It's uh, adopting a short-term unsustainable lifestyle to get to where you want to go. And then once you stop doing those things, it's just kind of like throwing yourself back in the deep end and people tend to kind of default to the habits and lifestyles that, that got them to a size that they, that they didn't want to be in the first place. And then, yeah, that's, that's kind of yo-yo dieting 101. <laughs> um, so that just a, a very long way of saying whatever you do, um, should, should be sustainable such that when you get where you want to go, the, to, to stay there just requires a little tweak instead of starting to try to do the whole lifestyle overhaul at, at that point. There's it's, it's a little bit tricky because technically, you know, if someone's like, Hey, does my life at maintenance calories need to look the same as my life in a calorie deficit? Technically they are different things. Like technically the trade-offs you have to make at 1800 calories are different than, or less than the trade-offs than you'd have to make at 2,500 calories. Like those, that's a factual statement, but that doesn't mean that you should take that and run with it to a point where like what you do to lose weight looks drastically different than a way you could see yourself living forever. And I, yes, I think it is true. You're, you know, the life that you live at maintenance can be a little bit different, but it should be different, almost reduced to the sentence that yes, you just eat more now. It shouldn't be different with big sweeping, well, I eat like this now, or I now I eat this food that I categorically avoided then, and uh, now I eat at these times where I categorically didn't then, let's say, or, you know, the bigger, the, the more you deviate from either the way you, some combination of the way you prefer to eat and the way you could realistically continue to eat long-term, the further you deviate from that from weight loss, because it's technically possible that what you just said could work like in a, theoretically in a vacuum, you could go do keto, lose weight, transition back to eating carbs, carbs and maintain like physiologically. There's nothing to say. You can't do that. Just like yeah. the further you deviate from a way you could see yourself living. The, the, I'm not betting on that. The further you deviate from that. And so when you were, yeah, you, I was going to say you and Eric are immersed in the, I was going to say you guys are immersed in the bodybuilding community. You haven't done bodybuilding. You've done powerlifting. Eric's done some bodybuilding, but I believe based on the fact that I, you know, can uh, take an idea of what your demographic for the podcast is that most of them are at least fitness enthusiasts, if not further than that, I would say. And so when you are somebody who's like, hey, you're, you know, you're Greg Knuckles, man, you know a lot about this stuff. You can reference a lot of research. You can look at a lot of data. You can, you know, reference your own personal experience with clients. But now it's time for you to pick how you'd like to go about doing this. What were and I'll, sh I'll shout out the first one. We're going to talk about four kind of pieces of advice that in a vacuum might sound okay, but maybe not as applicable for the get healthy, stay healthy crowd. Um, we're going to talk about what were some of those things that maybe weren't or don't apply so much to that population. The first one was is rigid macro counting. So maybe you could talk a little bit to that as to why that, again, from your own personal experience potentially, but also extrapolated out, outward, um, why that maybe is decent advice in it or in some contexts, but isn't something that we can just extrapolate. 
Sure. Yeah. So the the last kind of final bit of setup here is um, so the the like one of the one of the the motivations for this this segment on the podcast uh, a, a while back was that I think a lot of the uh, I. A lot of the weight loss advice in the general fitness community, I think, just kind of like trickles downhill from the bodybuilding community. Like that, that is where a lot of it originates. Um, and I think a lot of the advice that is good advice for bodybuilders um, maybe isn't quite as good of advice for everyone else. Uh, and, and a lot of the things that make it good advice for bodybuilders make it not as good of advice for everyone else, or at least like the, the context is different enough that things that may be necessary for bodybuilders very much aren't for, for other people. And so, um, and just as like the, the final little bit of setup is like, I, I do think it's, it's logical on some level for general fitness enthusiasts to kind of look towards what bodybuilders do. Um, for getting ideas of like strategies that they could use to lose weight. Because, you know, if, if you think about the sport of bodybuilding, um, you know, half of it is getting muscular and the other half is getting as lean as possible. And especially in the sport of natural bodybuilding, where like most people don't get that big in the first place. Cause you know, they're, they're not blasting a ton of gear. Um, like I'd say it's more like 80% of the sport is just getting as lean as possible. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, and so if, if you're someone who has struggled to lose weight before and you discover that, like you discover the sport of bodybuilding and you say like, Hey, look, here's, here's this whole community of people we're getting absolutely shredded is a core component of the sport. And not only can they get shredded, they can reliably and predictably get shredded on a certain date to look, to look that way on stage. It's not like, you know, Hey, they, they got shredded, but maybe it takes three months. Maybe it takes three years. Who knows? Like, no, like they, it's February. They signed up for a show on October 16th and, and on October 16th, they're going to be fucking diced, you know, like it's, it's uh very predictable. And so if, if you're someone who isn't trying to get that diced, but who has struggled with weight loss in the past, it's like, look, if, if they can reliably and predictably achieve that level of leanness on pre-specified timelines, then like if, if my goals related to losing weight and attaining a certain level of leanness are not that extreme, that advice definitely has to work for me. You know, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm applying this advice on easy mode almost because I'm trying to get down to 15%, not 7%, you know? Um, so I, I do think it's I do think it's logical that people would look to bodybuilders for for dietary advice. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't think it always plays out that well in practice. So now now to actually get into it, uh, rigid macro counting. So um, you uh, have your your general caloric targets, but you split that up into a separate protein target, carb target and fat target that you try to hit just dead on the head every single day. Um, that is a strategy that is absolutely, um, very productive and in some cases necessary for bodybuilders, largely because they are trying to get so fucking lean. Um, and so when you're trying to get that lean, like your, your total calorie targets are going to often get like extremely low, but you also have to maintain as much muscle as possible for the show. And so 
clearly you, you need to keep your protein up. Um, and that becomes more important the leaner you get, because the leaner you get, the more likely you are to lose muscle. Like if you're trying to go from 30 to 20% body fat, eh, as long as your protein intake's like decent and you're doing some resistance training, you're probably not going to lose much, if any muscle. You might even build some muscle if you're not super highly trained to begin with. But if you're really highly trained and you're trying to go from 12% to 6%, uh, all, all of your ducks have to be in a row to not lose quite a bit of muscle in, in that process. So that, that's going to require a pretty high protein target. And uh, you're, you're going to have to hit that number really, really consistently. Similar with the carb target, like calories get really low. Carbs are, are naturally going to have to come down, but you still have to train pretty hard to, to keep that muscle on your frame. You need the carbs to fuel your training. Um, and so like it, it makes sense to have that number to, to try to get in as much carbohydrate as possible in the context of a low calorie target and a high, and a high protein target. And similar with fat, like if calories are getting that low, um, it's not unlikely that your, that your fat intake might just naturally drift low enough that it could become problematically low for just like absorbing fat soluble, fat soluble vitamins, producing steroid hormones, um, just a, a host of bad things. And so you, you need to keep an eye on it to make sure it's high enough that you're not just kind of just just cratering your your metabolic health when you're trying when you're trying to maintain as much muscle as possible for a show but conversely you also don't want it to be too high because the higher it gets the more it's going to eat into your carb target which is necessary for fueling training and again all of this is in the context of someone who's already very lean trying to get extremely lean generally with a super low calorie target when you sorry go ahead oh, no, you, you got it. I was going to say, I always like chuckle because like if, if like aliens came down and they were like, shit, man, we over on planet, whatever, we're like, maybe we got to lose a little bit of weight. Let's see what these humans are up to. And they just pick out a crowd. They're like, these guys over at the, at the, the, the Stratton Marriott over here on the Saturday, man, these guys are diced. Like they must, they must have it down. Like that, that's yeah. what they would think. You'd be, all right, we're going to take these people. And I, I find that it's an important distinction that it is, it is, um, Probably not the best plan to assume those that are taking something to the extreme means that if I want to do that pursuit less, that I can, like you said, kind of put their strategy on easy mode or that I should do their strategy. I just don't need to take it as far or do it as long. In fact, it's not like the same path, just not as far. It's a different thing almost altogether, or at least different enough that you and I are sitting here having this discussion. So it's like, I think in your podcast, Eric talks about like, oh, I read this book by like Richard Branson on like how to start your 75th company. And like, here you are with like a, you know, you're like, I sell a couple t-shirts on, uh, on my like WooCommerce page. It's like not the same thing. Like they are different games altogether. And that doesn't mean that like, there's nothing to learn at all, but just acknowledging that it's not the same exact path. Just don't go as far. It is in many ways, a different path entirely. For sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so. All, all of which is to say, uh, having really strict, rigid macro targets makes all the sense in the world for bodybuilders, especially as they're getting closer to their show. But that is good advice for them because of the context they're dealing with. Trying to get that lean with that uh, strict of a calorie budget 
in in situations where if you don't do a lot of things very right, you're gonna you're you're either not gonna come in lean enough or you're gonna lose a lot of muscle in the process. Um, you know, and that might be the difference between like first place and fourth place or something. Uh, if you're not trying to get as diced as a bodybuilder, which unless you're a bodybuilder, just don't like that's it's it's not good. Um, but yeah, un unless that is your goal, the context is is just completely different. So uh, you're not trying to get as lean in the first place. And so the the primacy of the protein target doesn't matter quite as much like, you know, having generally ab above normal protein intake is is going to be a good thing regardless. But, you know, it doesn't have to be super high and you don't have to be crazy strict about it. And since you're not trying to get as diced, uh, and your, your calorie targets probably aren't going to get as constricted in the first place. A lot of those considerations related to fat and carbs just aren't as big of a deal anymore. Like if your calorie targets, not quite as low, you have more space for both carb intake and fat intake. So you don't have to worry about your fat getting like crazy, crazy low, or if it gets a little bit higher and it eats into the carbs a little bit, that's fine. Like you're still consuming enough carbs for day-to-day -day life to do whatever training you want to do. So like, it's, it's going to be okay. Um, so yeah, like you, you, the, the benefits of that level of strictness largely aren't there anymore. And also like there, there are drawbacks that come along with it. And, um, so like, if you're like, like for instance, like if you're, if you just have like a calorie target and a protein target and you say, Hey, I, I just want to make sure I'm within 10, 15% of these most days. Like that's, that's going to give you quite a bit of flexibility and it's going to give you a lot of opportunities to succeed. Like if you're aiming for, um, let's try to make the math easy. Like if you're aiming for 2000 calories a day, um, and, and you have like a 15% margin of, of error on that. So like, yeah, you know, you can go down to, what would that be? 18, like 15. seven. Yeah. No, you're no, right. I think you're right. 17. 17 you're right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, 15% range, eh, anything between like 1700 and 2300, like, eh, it's going to be fine. You know, um, like that, that gives you a, a pretty decent range to work with. Like if you're, if you're trying to get within, you know, plus or minus 2%, you know, now, now you're talking about what, what would that be? God, I, I shouldn't have put myself in a position where I have to do math live. Now it's uh, like 1960 to 2040. Like that's, that's a tight range. Like it, it might be pretty challenging to get in that range, eh, more flexible range, not being as strict about it. Like you're, you're going to have a lot uh, higher probability of success, similar with a protein target. And so um, you can, you can have more days where like, Hey, if I just have these two numbers, I'm focused on just total calories and protein, let the carbs and fat fall where they will and not be like super, super strict about the calories and protein. Like, Hey, you know, giving yourself plus or minus 10, 15%, you should be able to succeed with both of those goals. The vast majority of the time. Um, and with most goals, like success kind of snowballs, like a, an important concept is self-efficacy. Like a, a lot of people, especially if they've struggled with weight loss in the past, um, your, your self-efficacy for a weight loss pursuit might be relatively low because your, your past experiences tell you, Hey, like I, I haven't done well with this before. Maybe I shouldn't necessarily expect myself to do super well with it this time. Um, so then when you set yourself some goals related to, Hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to track things. Um, 
if you have like really, really strict macro targets that are like, honestly, like relatively challenging even for bodybuilders to hit every day. Uh, and, you know, maybe you're, you're uh, on the target with like calories and carbs, but you're under on protein over on fat. In the grand scheme of things, it may have been a great day of eating that is perfectly appropriate for your goals. But like, you still feel like a 50% failure, you know, like you, you failed to hit two of the four numbers you had set for yourself. Whereas if you just have one or two numbers, either just total calories or calories and protein and give yourself a bit more leeway, then you should be able to go two for two most days. Um, so instead of, of failing to hit those really strict numbers, a pretty decent uh, bit of the time, which further threatens self-efficacy, which might be low in the first place. Now you're, you're giving yourself, uh, you're, you're giving yourself targets where if you get close enough, they will still move you towards your goals, but they're much, much easier to hit. Um, that's going to be good for helping build and improve self-efficacy as you, as you attempt to lose weight. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I do, I do think that really, really strict macro targets. So tr trying to hit all three numbers in a or and if you deviate from them, like never being more than two percent plus or minus, which I see some people recommend, or even even some of the more like loosey goosey bodybuilders might say like, ah, try to be within five percent. Like that's that's still a a pretty tight range, which uh, is is a tight range for very understandable reasons if you're a bodybuilder in show prep. But it does it it just doesn't need to be that way for for virtually anyone else. So. Uh, yeah, you, you don't need to be as strict with it. it, it like just in general, thing, things should suck as much as they have to suck, but not anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, mo most people don't like uh, attempting to pre-plan every bit of their diet with like that insane level of precision. Um, so it, it just it just adds suckiness to something that doesn't need to suck that much. And going back to the principle of something that needs to be sustainable long-term if you're trying to lose the weight and keep it off. Like if like you can absolutely lose weight with like really, really strict macro counting, but like even bodybuilders don't want to do that 365 days a year. Generally it's more like loosey goosey in the off season. And then it's like, Hey, I'm going to be really strict for show prep, which makes sense because show prep is the time that they have to be really strict. Um, and so, yeah, if you're just trying to lose like 15, 20 pounds and keep it off. Uh, if, if like, you're probably not going to want to stick with the super strict macro counting every day for the rest of your life to maintain that weight loss. Like even the bodybuilders who need to be that strict when prepping for a show, don't do that 365 days a year, or, or at least, at least the vast majority don't. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's unnecessarily difficult um, it, it sets you up in a position where you're more likely to just fail to hit those targets with the precision that, that you think you should, which can threaten self-efficacy of the actual weight loss attempt. And it's, it's not a style of nutrition, of nutrient intake regulation that most people are likely to be excited about sticking with for the rest of their lives. We, we are big here, here at the podcast here. We are big proponents of if you're going to track one widening up those goalposts and just like, Oh, you know, which sounds like, I don't know if anybody's a Cowboys fan, but we would probably want to do those on those extra points here, but um, widening up the goalposts and to give you, to give yourself more wins, more feeling of improved self-efficacy. Um, and you can do that 
both by reducing the number of boxes you need to check by just having calorie and protein, but also by widening up those targets. Like, I think you would still be making something of a faux pas here if you had a singular calorie target to the number and a singular protein target to the number. I mean, you'd be trading one source of neuroticism for the next, but I think a lot of people hear that and they think that, hey, there are these guys here talking about tracking, if they're gonna track track calories and protein. And what they hear is that that carbs and fats aren't aren't important. And and I know you're not saying that, but but what people will hear is, oh, it doesn't matter, carbs and fat, eating carbs or fats, it doesn't matter how much of them I eat. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is if you are taking a slightly less aggressive approach where your generally calories are gonna be a little bit higher, it's very likely that just based off of hedonic pre- like food preference, that you're gonna hit a minimum requirement for those two macros without counting them. We're not saying that they're not important, they don't play a role. We're just saying that you probably don't have to track them to hit that minimum threshold. And frankly, I'd go even beyond that and say, by not counting them, you can now kind of fall back on creating an eating pattern that that more reflects the foods you'd like to eat. Because if you're like, oh, I gotta do 0.3 grams per pound for fat and I gotta do the rest from carbs. Or like, well, what if I like eating a, you know, when can, I can't have a filet one night or I can't have salmon anymore or I can't have an avocado. Like I'm, I, my, my coach gave me these like low fat macros. Like, but that doesn't reflect how you'd want to eat long-term. Maybe you a more moderate approach, maybe naturally, hedonically that you like a higher fat approach. And so that kind of opens the door for you to be like, all right, if I hit my calorie target within a wide range, if I maybe have like a protein minimum or I'm like, all right, if I'm at this, you know, kind of realistic conservative minimum, if I'm above that, that's cool. But once I'm here, I can allow myself to eat food that both makes me feel good and that I enjoy. And so I find that that's almost an... I wish it would go without saying, but it doesn't. I still take on a large majority of clients who have come from a rigid macro background and, you know, business-wise, it's like, you know, we're going to do a whole lot better. That, that's been good. Um, I also want to point out that, like, bodybuilders are, they are, their life cycle of their body weight is not the life cycle that you have as a goal. Like, what they do is inherent you know, in some ways, yo-yo dieting. And, and yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it is, it is competitive yo-yo diet. <laughs> yeah. And so like, they're, they're not actually even trying to do what you're doing. They're right. like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to do this one fucking minute. If you ask a person, a regular person, you know, we're talking about like a get healthy, stay healthy crowd about rigid macro counting. They probably don't, you know, let's say this person doesn't like it. And you ask a bodybuilder on like peak show day, do you, are you excited to continue tracking the macro to a 2%, uh, you know, deviation? They're like, no, of course not. I want to fucking go back to eating a little bit more intuitively. And so like nobody really, I mean, I'm not saying nobody out there, people, I love tracking. All right, it's cool. Great. Awesome. But like generally, like even they will go through a period where they, if they don't have to be doing this, they would, they will choose to not do this. I mean, that should say something about you who does not have to do this. And so, um, I found that to be just like, uh, definitely like a, an argument of like, well, these people, when they choose they have a little bit more freedom to choose. They don't have to be staged dick skin lean on this date. They will choose to also not do this. Um, And and I think that this unfortunately all falls under an umbrella of like flexible dieting. You guys made the post on the podcast that like flexible dieting comes in, you know, is not synonymous with like rigid macro counting to the gram. Flexible dieting comes in a lot of shapes and sizes of the word flexible. Um, Also doesn't take into account the idea that flexible doesn't just mean macros. It means mindset. And there's like certainly more to it than just, Hey, we're going to acknowledge that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, food choices might be slightly surpassed by total calorie intake, which is like generally what flexible dieting is about. Um, And so I think that this idea of like, Oh, I should do flexible dieting. Like, does not tell me anything about what you're doing at all, frankly, without like further, you know, investigation. Well, I mean, I, I would also say, uh, like really, really rigid macro targets aren't flexible dieting. Like I, that, that's a, that's a misnomer, which 
like I, I understand how it how it became a thing uh, where, where people would associate that uh, that dietary pattern with with the phrase flexible dieting. But like it's not like it, it's more it's more flexible than what it's supplanted, because like back in the day on, on the bodybuilding forums, there was this idea of like you still need these really, really strict macro targets, but you also have to hit them purely with like quote unquote clean food. Um, so yeah, the people who, who advocated for what they were calling flexible dieting would say like, ah, oh, well really, really it is like the, the macro targets are the, are the important thing. And like, we can just have some more flexibility around food choices and, and that's fine, uh, without really questioning the, the necessary, the, the necessity or importance of those really strict macro targets in the first place. But if you if you look at the literature on uh, flexible versus rigid cognitive restraint, um, like the the hallmarks of rigid cognitive restraint are essentially um, you. It's essentially like a it's it's a lack of grace. Like there's good behaviors, bad behaviors. There's there's good things and bad things, and you're either you're either doing the good things, and if you're not, you're you're doing the bad things. It, like it's it's very dichotomous and black and white. Um, which, which is what really rigid macro counting is. Like, even if you're giving yourself flexibility with food choices, uh, you're either hitting the numbers or you're not. So like each day or each week, like it's, it's either good or bad. Whereas flexible restraint is more about acknowledging that there is, you know, th that there are many shades of gray and uh, it's a lot more about, it's a lot more about like principles than just like necessarily things are good or bad and you have to only do the good things. Um, so like a, as, as an example, um, if you like, like let's, let's even take all of, all of the macro targets out of it. Like, let's say you're trying to lose weight. Uh, you burn about 2,500 calories a day. You're trying to lose about a pound a week. So you're, so you're trying to eat about 2000 calories a day. If you have a, a rigid cognitive restraint approach to that number, you could say like, well, okay, you know, like no, no calorie counting approach is perfect. But like, I, I want to get really close to that number. So I'm going to give myself a range of, of 1950 to 2050 calories. And like, if I'm in that range, I, I'm good. And if not, today's a failure. Um, whereas like a more flexible approach might say, hey, you know, I, I know my goal is to lose a pound a week need to be in about a 500 calories per day deficit to do that. So that is why my, my number is, is 2000 calories. But, um, you know, if I just like, don't feel like being that strict today and I eat 2300 calories, guess what? That's fine. Like I'm, I'm still below my, my maintenance. So like I am still moving towards my goal just at a, at a slightly slower rate. Um, and, and one of the reasons why flexible restraint is, so important is because that mindset can be extremely useful when you hit setbacks. Like the, 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 the thing about rigid restraint is rigid restraint is, is brittle. Um, like things are either good or bad. And so when things are bad, like if you already exceed your calorie target for the day, since it's binary, it was either success or failure. It's like, well, I, I already fucked up. So like, I, I may as well just keep going. And, and so like uh, a lot of like a, a lot of people with either weight loss goals or, or like physique goals report like 
honestly, to me, what, what seems to be like pretty concerning, like binge behavior. And I, I think, you know, certainly not all of it, but I, I think a good chunk of that is just kind of like downstream of, of that really rigid cognitive restraint, even if, even if they're doing what they call flexible dieting, it's like, no, like you're, you're being really restrictive day to day. And so then like once, like w once you've already done something you perceive to be bad, then it's like, well, now, now you've basically just given yourself a blank check to like, it, it can't, it can't get worse. Like it's already bad. It was, it was black or white. It's black. So psh, like, like may as well go for it. Um, Whereas like if if you have more of like a, a flexible restraint type mindset, then it's it's a lot easier to like contextualize things. It's like, hey, you know, I'm I'm trying to lose a pound a week. I've I've been pretty close to my number six or seven days this week, but like, yeah, I'm go I'm going out with friends and like, you know, I, I want to eat more. Like we're going, we're going to a bar, we're gonna get some drinks. Um, and like, that's fine. Like I'll, I'll have, like, I'll go up to maintenance or maybe I'll eat 3000 calories and, you know, for, for the week, I'm going to, I'm going to lose half a pound instead of a pound. And like, that's, that's fine. Cause it's, it is, yeah, it's, it's about like principles and, and, and doing things that are in their totality aligned with your goals instead of, you know, some, something is goal promoting or it's, it's taking you away and it, and it is just very black and white like that. And, and I think that, rigid macro counting itself is like an inherently rigid approach. Um, and it leads people down the sort of roads that, that rigid, that rigid approaches lead people down, which um, of, often means like the, since, since your form of inhibition comes from the rule, like the strict rule, once you violate the rule, now you don't really have that mechanism for inhibition there anymore. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I don't, I don't think that's good. <laughs> I, I would agree with you there. And I think I, what comes to mind is just the idea of, all right, we're, we're talking about on a spectrum of rigid to flexible and we're saying, okay, like at the extreme end of rigid probably doesn't extrapolate to the average person who doesn't have a, the need to do that it isn't sustainable. It doesn't actually end up with the goal that you want, which is to get healthy and stay healthy and sustain whatever progress you make. But where do we maybe trend into, you know, I think there are people that are, feel a little bit like they take that and run with it a bit. And they're like, well, I'm now I'm just too flexible. And now I had three of those maintenance days that I think were maintenance, but I'm, you know, my the tracking's not perfect. I'm up over maybe 10, 10 to 20% of my tracking. What I thought was maintenance is really a surplus. It's two or three days of the week. Now I'm at maintenance for the week. I do that two or three weeks out of the month. Um, between that and just basic scale fluctuations, all of a sudden I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm too laissez-faire about this whole thing. I'm, uh, you know, I need to move on the spectrum of flexible, too flexible to, you know, uh, the sort of changes that that would allow me to continue to make progress. Uh, I, again, I think it's a fine line, not a fine line, actually. I don't think it's a fine line. I think it is a balance um, between those two things. And, uh, you know, did you find along your weight loss journey that you were uh, having to confront that where you're like, am I being too flexible here? Am I, you know, am I going to get there at all if I maintain this sta this standpoint or state of mind? Yeah, no, not, not really. Um, <laughs> so... But I, I do, I do definitely hear what you're saying, and and I, I I understand the point you're making. But I think that um, I think that 
I, I think any approach you take, you should expect it to be kind of messy and kind of in an ongoing discussion with yourself about about goals and priorities. Because um, like what what you're describing in a vacuum doesn't necessarily sound like the worst thing in the world. Like I, I think that there's um, I think that there's often like an inherent bit of tension between someone's goals and someone's values and preferences at a moment in time. And I think that an, imp an important skill to develop is to be able to negotiate those things with yourself in an understanding and non non-judgmental way or to hook up with a coach who um like will will help you do that um because yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where like maybe you just need to have uh, a slight shift in strategy or um maybe it is just one of those things where like for whatever reason the the goals you have uh may have mattered a lot to you before may matter a lot to you in the future but just aren't as important right now um and yeah like you you need to be able to to kind of work those things out with yourself so so two examples um the the first would be like hey maybe a, a change in strategy is needed so like let's say someone's trying to lose weight pretty slowly like let's say they're only trying to lose like half a pound a week or something like that um and they just have their diet set up to where it's like hey i'm gonna be in a 200, 300 calorie per day deficit. Um, but I am going to, uh, like go out with friends every weekend and just have like a, an evening where things are like a, a little bit less inhibited, might go over my targets, eh, whatever. So it's like entirely feasible for that one night to just completely wipe out your calorie deficit for the week, even if it's not like an insane night of eating, because like half a pound a week, that's what, like 17, 1800 calorie per week deficit. Like, yeah, if you're if you're aiming for like 2000 calories a day or whatever, and, and you have a day where where you're at like 4000, like that's 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 not a, a crazy intake, like especially if you're going out with friends, the drinks are flowing like, yeah, whatever, you, you know, like that that happens. Um so yeah, like if if that's what's uh, going on, like it, it could be as simple as like, hey, I, I need to reassess my strategy. Um, like if I am going to be doing this every weekend, then like, hey, instead of aiming for 17, 1800 calories a day, um, I'm going to aim for like, eh, maybe like 1500 calories a day, like just just giving yourself a little bit more cushion. So when you do go out with friends and eat 3500, 4000 calories uh, one night on the weekend, you still wind up with a weekly energy deficit that's, you know, in that that's compatible with your goals. Um, so yeah, like that, that could be a situation where you were previously maybe a bit too flexible with yourself, but you are still like motivated to reach your goals. And you look to see like, Hey, this is what I plan to do. Here's what I'm actually doing. Maybe I just need to tweak my plan a little bit such that my behavior that I find myself gravitating towards is overall still in line with my plan. So, um, and I mean, I, I think that this kind of goes back to flexible cognitive restraint as well. But uh, the, the idea of viewing <clears throat> viewing setbacks as learning opportunities instead of failures, I think, is just critically important for, I mean, not even just this, but accomplishing any goal that's hard. Because like things that things that are hard, like you're you're going, it's not going to be a straight line to success. Like there are going to be setbacks along the way. Um, 
And so, yeah, if, if you want to be successful long-term, like you, you <clears throat> need to develop that mindset of like, Hey, I, I tried to do this and didn't get the results I wanted. Um, I'm not a failure, but I can learn something from this so I can succeed more in the future. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's an example of like, Hey, you were a bit more flex, you were a bit too flexible, but overall, like things are fine. You just need a, a shift in strategy. Um, now for an example of, uh, just, just evaluating kind of where you're at in life or, or whatnot. Um, so like, th this is something I see that I saw a lot, uh, when like coaching like young men or, or women, but it, it was mostly men who became first time fathers who were trying to lose weight and build as much muscle as possible. And then kid comes and, you know, at, at least from the outside looking in, seem like they're a good dad. Like they're, they're not, uh, making the mom get up every single time in the night when the baby starts crying or, or needs its diaper changed. And so like, Hey, you used to be very, very like a, a an almost single-minded focus on just trying to get as strong or as jacked as possible, like lose weight, whatever it was. And now like you're not, cause there's a, there's a, there's a new baby. Uh, so you're very focused on that. Cause like that, that's a big thing that matters. And also just like this, the circumstances of your life are way different now. You know, you're, you're not sleeping as much. Your stress levels are way higher. Uh, the amount of free time you have to, to meal prep or plan your diet or get to the gym is now going to be constrained. Cause like babies have to go to the doctor. Uh, it seems like a completely absurd amount. Um, so like, you know, you, you got those things you're run, you're running them here and there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, at the, like overnight, your your lifestyle, uh, th like th things that are uncontrollable are now completely different. Um, and like, yeah, like maybe you start missing some workouts. Maybe you start being a little bit more lax on your diet. Um, I, in, a, in a situation like that, like if you start having issues pursuing your goals, is it that, hey, I'm, I'm being too flexible about this? Or is it like, Hey, the flexibility I've been giving myself through this process has kept me from just completely falling off the wagon. Um, and that's a, that's a good thing for now. You know, like I, your, your lifestyle, like your life isn't in a place anymore where pursuing the goals you had with the level and focus with the level of focus and dedication you previously had is feasible anymore. Like it, it's, it's just no longer feasible. And so it's like, Hey, like for, I'm going to have to call an audible, you know, if, if we, if we view this as a journey, um, you know, you were making some progress towards your destination, but now it's like, Hey, maybe, maybe I just need to pull off at a rest stop for a while and try to not go backwards, but it's fine if, if we don't go forwards for a little bit. Um, and yeah, so, you know, uh, you, you develop a plan when the circumstances of your life are one way, uh, and then either, either your life changes or, uh, and, and this, this is something I see from time to time as well. Like someone maybe starts out at like 250 and they're like, Hey, I, I want to get down to 180 and, and have abs get lean. And they get down to like 210, 220. And then they start like not sticking to their diet quite as closely anymore. And then you kind of talk to them and they, they realize like, you know what? I, I thought I wanted to lose that much weight and get that lean, but like, I feel good here. And like the diet is starting to get really, really hard. And 
I don't know, like essentially like the difficulty for benefit trade-off had made sense to that point. And it just started not making sense. And they they set a goal six months ago that like, hey, I want to get to this size. And then they get like halfway there and, and realize like, actually, no, like I'm I'm good. Um, so, so oftentimes I think, um, I think, I think behavior often gives you clues about what you actually want and what your priorities are before you actually like intellectualize those things for yourself. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, that, um, being able to be more flexible with yourself kind of allows you to give yourself those clues maybe a little bit sooner and not quite as uh not quite as violently as you may have otherwise with a with a more strict approach um so yeah like if if you if you find yourself in that situation where it's like hey i i thought i had this goal um i i gave myself some flexibility when pursuing it and i find myself kind of taking more and more flexibility that that's a that, that's a good time just to check in with yourself and realize like hey do, does this goal still matter to me as much as it used to um if it doesn't, is that because I realized I wanted something different, my lifestyle or values changed, or is it, or is it just like a, a completely temporary thing? Like, like for myself, like, like I'm not going to lose weight over the holidays. Like I, I still technically have a goal of losing weight, but it's like, yeah, Thanksgiving to New Year's, like, fuck that. There's it's, it's Thanksgiving. That's, that's every fat guy's favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. And I am still like, in my soul of that guy. Like it's, it's fucking Thanksgiving. Come on. Uh, the meal itself is great. The leftovers are even better. And then like, you know, similar with, with Christmas and new year's. So, you know, I, I still technically had a goal of losing weight and I absolutely did not lose weight. Um, but like the, the flexibility I gave myself was still like sufficient for maintaining weight. Whereas otherwise probably would have gained like 15, 20 pounds. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, now, now it's the new year. Those, uh, uh blessed food-based holidays are behind me now. And so now I'm, I'm having a much, much easier time, like sticking to the numbers that I was like theoretically trying to hit the whole time. Um, you know, just because that, uh, that just kind of like seasonal, like sh short-term food environment thing has reverted and is back to normal again. So yeah, I, I don't know. Like it, it's, it, it's messy. Um, and if, if you give yourself flexibility and you find yourself taking too much of that flexibility and it, it, uh, not allowing you to, um, make progress towards your goal at the rate you previously thought you wanted to, um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that that is just a, uh, an indication that it's time to start asking yourself some of those questions. Like, do you just need a change in strategy? Or uh, is this just a temporary thing and you're going to get back on track uh, for, for like identifiable reasons? Or, you know, is, is it an indication that like maybe you don't want exactly the things you wanted before when you initially set the goal? Yeah, I don't, I, my neck hurts from the amount of nodding I was doing for those of you guys that are not on YouTube here, just because that's like uh, this idea that like, that there's something inherently good or bad about your how you're acting on this path. I think behavior leaving clues is a quote that I will steal for sure. Um, just because I think that when I, if I'm, I'm thinking through, you know, case studies or situations with clients where 
there's, you know, not adherence to the plan to a degree potentially. And it's like, yeah, okay, is that is that a you issue? Is that a plan issue? Is it like a we need to, you know, just kind of, okay, there's like a different sort of a little bit of a change we can make to the plan or is the juice not worth the squeeze? Is this a moment to change some combination of mindset, perspective, expectation or is this a we need to change the plan? Um, and, and I would I, I just, you know, I wouldn't say almost all the time, but quite often it is the perspective, expectation, mindset side of things that, that tends to be the more fruitful way to go about doing this. Um, I think uh, it goes back to a little bit of something I had mentioned earlier about this, like kind of letting that part of your, you know, like you said, like just accepting that maybe you're not in that place where you are willing to do the things that you would have to do to get this goal that you at one point wanted, but maybe don't right now. Um, and that can be struggle of letting that go, at least in the short term. But the behavior leaves clues and looking at that from a non-judgmental, neutral standpoint is a, I want to say a skill because it's something I've only cultivated for myself in the last couple of years of like going to therapy and actually spending some time like some portion of my week, like being introspective, which I think we don't do just generally as a culture. Um, and so, you know, at some point, if what you want, like doesn't match up with what you'd want to do to get that, like that, that sounds like a halftime pump up speech. Like how bad do you want it? It's not a, I don't want to pump anybody up with that speech. I, it's a totally neutral question. Like there is, it is an equal, to me, it's an equally happy outcome. If you decide that you're like, you know what, you know, um, uh, this is actually important to me. I, you know, I'm recalibrating the things that I want and I, I get it. It's probably going to take a little bit of a plan adjustment, but you know, or there were external factors that I can move beyond and then I'll get there. That's cool. And, and I'm going to give it another go. And it's, it's more of like a, Hey, I, we could probably do this. You know, this is more of like a, maybe a plan adjustment or something else that tangibly I'm going to continue to pursue this goal. To me, it's equally happy for you to be like, yeah, this shit isn't worth it. It's not worth it. You know, the, the example of I was 250, I thought I want to be 180. I got to 210. The trade-offs at 210 represented more of like what I'm willing to give up. Uh, it, and that is a wonderfully happy experience. And I think that it's often like a seen as a failure. I'm giving up or I didn't get what I wanted to go. Like the ultimate goal is to get to a, a body... I don't mean that just from like the way it looks, but let's just say a body that can do the things you want to do physically in life while living a lifestyle that involves the things that you want to do and that you don't know, you don't know what that is going to look. And I will say for almost everybody, it's probably not as lean as you think it will be. So, you know, it, uh, a lot of people are just undervaluing, you know, if you're like, hey, I, you know, the, the sixth day, one of these days of the week, I go out with my friends, we have a couple of drinks and, you know, some generally those are higher calorie days for a multitude of potential reasons. Like, it's like, yeah, man, that's a, uh, that's probably in some way mathematically getting in the way of this, you know, fat loss goal that you have or the rate of fat loss you want. And it's like, all right, we could maybe look at the other days, maybe on the days where you aren't doing that, we shave a little bit here and we let you just continue with that flexible thing. And we look at options of plan changes and you're like, well, I don't want to make any of those changes. It's like, great. Well, like that's an, that's another happy outcome of like, well, then you've decided that these things are important, that they are not non-negotiables, but like things that are also important to you. I think a lot of people forget that there's a trade-off involved here and that you have other stuff that you really like and that when push comes to shove and potentially making changes to those things isn't something you wanna do, that that's not an inherently sad moment. That, that that's like a realization of, of, of kind of the hierarchy of your own values. And, and, and that can be just a very happy experience. I think it, a lot of times it's not initially, um, and I see this a lot. I don't know about you, Greg. I don't know if you're still doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I have some clients who will, who are in the bracket of like very generally, loosely speaking, like already fit and healthy, looking to mm -hmm. get even leaner and just aren't aware of 
that goal having disproportionate trade-offs and might work with me for a period of time and not achieve the health and, or like the, I want to be shredded or see this muscle definition or lose this weight goal, but come out with like a re, uh, a better understanding of, of what they end up, what, what their best balance of lifestyle and body that allows me to do things physically that I want, what that actually looks like. And it might actually be where you are right now. Um, and I think that there's so many people listening to this podcast in that bracket, I, whether you're in that bracket or not, is about kind of letting that recalibrate as you go on through life and through different stages. My fiance and I are gonna start trying to have a baby and I cannot fucking wait to, I'm pa- super passionate about this topic. I'm, I'm speaking at a conference about uh, how little, basically like how little you can do and still make hypertrophy gains, like just from a volume perspective. Um, and I cannot wait to take on that as a new goal and just kind of, again, shift perspective and give up the four or five times 60 minutes and be like, I want to really kind of flex this idea of how little I can do and just accept that those sorts of things change. Um, but I think that that can very often be, the, the behavior leaves clues is really like just one thing that will definitely stick home with me. Because if you're struggling to, adhere to the plan that might not be a, a you problem or a problem with the with the plan it might be generally that you just actually don't I, I don't like saying you don't want it bad enough because that's it's not a pump-up speech it's like very happy to realize you don't want it bad enough like the whole you don't want to be fucking 70 years from now looking back and been like wow like I could have just been spending that time realizing I didn't want that and I could have been living a much happier present life instead of like staying kind of like teeth sunken into this goal the whole time kind of like I don't know with a lot more friction towards myself. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, I think that um, I, I think that the the fitness content space, especially on social media, I think it tacitly gives people some some pretty unrealistic expectations, um, like like just leading people to assume that they can get everything they want with either with either no trade-offs or very minimal trade-offs, you know, it is, it is not hard to find like the, the algorithm will serve you plenty of people who look fucking incredible, who tell you like, Oh yeah. Like I, I maintain this body eating whatever I want. And like those people exist. They're extremely rare, but there's billions of people in this world. And so if, you know, if there's a hundred thousand people, that 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 applies to that's an that's an extremely small percentage of those people but all of them have instagram accounts and like (laughs) they're you know that's that's the type of stuff people want to see and so that's what the algorithm will will serve to you and so um yeah I, i think that i think that social media gives people some some pretty unrealistic expectations and i think one of the um i think one of the most valuable things you can do as a coach and i think I think what a lot of clients want is just validation. Um, like you, you can tell, like if, if you can tell them like it is, it is fine to want what you want and the, uh, the, the setbacks and struggles you're experiencing are completely valid and you, you think they're weird, but they actually aren't weird at all. Like it's, it's completely normal. Um, I, I think that that gives people a, a a bit of peace of mind that they might struggle to come to on their own. So I, I do think that that's that that's very helpful. Another thing I'll say, and, and this is this is probably me being excessively cynical, but whatever. That's that's who I am. Um, I I do think some of this stuff 
is uh, uh, coaches and people who work in the fitness industry um, probably not even consciously. Like, I, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and just like sketches out what I'm about to say as like a core component of their business plan. But I, I think that just kind of like tacitly people responding to incentives that exist uh, without really thinking about it too much. I think that um, I think that like really strict and restrictive plans um, serve a purpose for coaches. And I also think that um, Im implanting the idea in people's heads and fostering the idea in people's heads that you you in fact should want to pursue very lofty goals. Like you want to build as much muscle as as your your genetic limit would allow. You want to get as strong as you possibly can. You want to get and stay as shredded as you possibly can. Like, you know, if 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 that is ever a thought that has crossed your mind, that is a good thought that you should hold on to and and pursue doggedly to the ends of the earth. I think that um I think that those things serve coaches well because if uh if if someone's on an extremely strict plan and they're not seeing the results they want, there's a pretty, I mean, there's like a virtually a hundred percent chance that if the plan is strict enough, people slip up fairly frequently. And then it's, you know, it's not your, your fault as the coach. It's the client just needed to adhere better. You know, it's, it's on them. You can kind of shift that blame. Um, like, Hey, like th this is on you. I'm doing a great job. Like you, you just need to, you just need to want this more, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, like with, with the really lofty goals, you know, Hey, if, if you're just trying to lose 10 pounds, you might hire me for three months. If you're trying to lose 50 pounds or put like 500 pounds on your powerlifting total or 30 pounds of muscle in your physique, you might have to hire me for the next five years. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I, I do think that there, that there are some of those just kind of like, uh, yeah, just like tacit, tacit incentives in play where e even without thinking about it, it's, it's easy to nudge people towards convincing themselves that they, that they want to lock themselves into really, really aggressive goals, uh, and, and tacit incentives kind of, um, for prioritizing stricter, more restrictive approaches that, that kind of gets you off the hook when, when inevitably the client can't stick to them perfectly. And, you know, then, then when they have complaints, it's on them, not you, you know, uh, uh, it is the, the rigid macro counting discussion and the, to, to make it analogous to the, let's say training or hypertrophy side of things in, in the same way that a lot of what we, you know, is trickled down and eventually disseminated potentially to people at my level who might speak more directly to, uh, the general pop fitness people who, uh, who are trying to lose weight or get in shape that a lot of what we know about hypertrophy training and optimal hypertrophy and what makes the best gains is, has been trickled down in some way from like, you know, old bodybuilders, like full blown maximalists, people that are in, interested in, you know, or not interested in worrying about diminished returns that are interested in maximal outcome that are not worried about trade-offs that are, you know, either their livelihood or their identity hang in the balance. And that ends up making it to the average person. And what ends up being a disconnect is that we, I don't know that somebody's articulated this better than me, but it's just like what has come to mind to me is that like, we feel a certain pride in 
I don't know what it is about health and fitness, but wanting to do the, the thing that is the best. Uh, why would I do something that's not the best? It's like, oh, here's this optimal hypertrophy training. You know, like I run a group program for that trains for hypertrophy, train four times a week, 45 to 60 minutes. Um, but it's really tough to sell my program with like, hey, you're gonna get pretty pretty good gains. Um, and in much shorter time, we're gonna be a little bit more efficient. It's much easier to sell my program. as like, this is going to give you absolute best gains. Um, and even if it takes four times, five times a week, 90 minutes, like we're gonna get the best gains. I will get more signups. That's ludicrous. You guys are not, it is, it's okay to acknowledge that you don't want the absolute best of everything. Um, the best of anything inherently means you are going to be sacrificing elsewhere and you're probably gonna enter into a space within the pursuit of that goal where there's vast diminishing returns. And so I find that to be like this obsession with maximalism because it comes down from people who are actually maximalists. And this idea that you probably actually don't want the best. Like it's almost a red flag if you see, it's almost, it becomes less applicable, less generalizable, less, less externally valid when you see like these very extreme, whether it's somebody super shredded or super, somebody super mega muscular, tracking every macro to the gram. Like those should be things that you feel are less applicable to you. Um, the problem is we, we see us and we want that outcome. And we're like, all right, it's applicable to me because I want that outcome. It's like, you don't want that outcome because that outcome has a cost that you don't really want to pay, but it's going to take you a couple cycles of maybe yo-yo dieting and, and ruining self-efficacy to maybe figure that out hopefully one day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a there's a principle in philosophy, like particularly in moral philosophy, that you can't necessarily derive ought from is. Um, and, and this... Like th this is something that um, I don't know that the people who I think I largely agree with most of the time. One of the things they do that that annoys me is um, the the chorus of like, oh, j just follow the data like that, that kind of thing. It's like, well, what what does that necessarily mean? Like you can you can acknowledge the data, but like data is data. Data is the is. And then follow like that, that implies you're doing something like that, that implies Acting, that like action. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the data themselves tell you what you should do, what you ought to do. Um, and so if you, if you feel that way, that, that means that there's like an implicit value judgment where it's like, Hey, if, if the research tells me that this is what I need to do, to maximize hypertrophy, I therefore must do that. I ought to do that. Um, when like the the implicit value assumption there is I must maximize hypertrophy. That is that is an inherent good. It's a thing I must do. Therefore, I have to do this thing. Um, and, and that's that's like something that that I run into a lot with with scientific communication, where it's like you you write about the outcome of a study, and it's like. Um, like, like, hey, the the subjects did this thing. And uh, so uh, a good example of this is like training volume. Um, there was a there was a, a meta few months back comparing um, like like pretty high training volumes to really high training volumes. So I think it was like 12 to 20 sets per muscle group per week versus 20 plus. And um, ah, they, they were looking at three different muscles. I think it was biceps, triceps and quads. And I think 20 plus was led to significantly more growth of the triceps, 
maybe not much of a difference for the biceps and like a, a mean effect size that, that leaned in favor of 20 plus for the quads as well. Like if, if it wasn't exactly that, like that's, that's close enough, but essentially the, the aggregate results uh, suggested that like, Hey, like 20 plus sets per week, it's probably not going to make a night and day difference compared to 12 to 20 sets per week, but like it, it will probably be slightly better. So like I, I wrote about that. Um, and, and tried to contextualize it saying like, Hey, look, um, you can, you can grow muscle with less than 12 sets per week. You'll grow plenty of muscle with 12 to 20 sets per week. And if you're absolutely trying to maximize hypertrophy, eh, it might require like, like really high volumes. Um, and you know, that it is what it is. Like, that's what the research suggests. And then there, there were just a ton of comments that, that were just like, well, this is fucked up. I don't have enough. If you if you game this out and just write up, like, what would a training program look like to give me 22 sets per week for all major muscle groups? I'm going to be in the gym all day, every day. I don't have time for this. And it's just like, I, I never told you you had to. I'm just saying the research suggests that if you want to maximize hypertrophy, maybe you have to. <laughs> and so, you know, like that that's a an example of like the the people reading that and coming to that conclusion, we're absolutely deriving an ought from an is. The is was maybe volume needs to be quite high to maximize hypertrophy and the ought they derived was well fuck, like now I need to make my volume really fucking high and, and what the hell? Now I don't even have time to do all of it. I don't have that much time in the week to work out where it's like you could you could derive other outcomes from that information like you you could say to yourself hey i don't have time to maximize hypertrophy but i do still have time to see uh, quite a bit of hypertrophy and you know what i'm fine with quite a bit it doesn't have to be maximal but like it, it does it does seem like for for a lot of people that thought doesn't doesn't really go through their head in the first place like what whatever seems to be the best therefore is what they have to do um and yeah i mean li life is about trade-offs uh there 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 are probably 50 different things that i would love to be the best in the world at and like i'm not going to be the best in the world at any of them uh and you know realistically if i could be like pretty good at like four or five things eh, that's that's fine with me and realistically i uh, probably be really hard to be the very best at one thing or yeah, pretty good at like a dozen things. So, you know, it's, it's just a matter of, of making those trade-offs, like what, what matters to you and um, what level of dedication, focus, and time investment are you comfortable with to, to achieve what, what will turn out to be reasonable results for you. Not to hammer the uh, is in a training volume perspective, but that is a, uh... To me, I find the biggest uh, extrapolation of that, or or, or mis misallocation of that, is the, is our is like the Schoenfeld 2017 meta, where like from which we decided you must do ten or more sets per week to maximize hypertrophy. It's like that is a reasonable conclusion from that meta analysis, but the amount of unbelievable information in that meta about the groups that did less volume is just never ever ever discussed. Not to yeah, the uh, the pooled effect size was still positive for the group. The group's doing like three to five sets. Yeah, it was one to four sets per week made 64% gains. Yeah, yeah. Five to nine was 84% gains. Uh, you know, 
and and the way they tracked those volumes was like via indirect as well. So if you did a set of pull-ups, it counted for like fucking six muscle groups. It was like all the muscles on your back and biceps and forearms. And one set of leg press counted as glutes, quads, and hamstrings. And so like, you, you know, just the this idea that like, you know, if you ask me five years ago and every single fitness influencer slash coach, how many sets per muscle group per week should you do, period, without even the additional context, uh, the appendage of for best gains, it's, oh, you got to do 10 or more sets per week because we, from that paper, the conclusion was, well, this is probably what's best for best gains. Immediately became, this is what you must do or you shrivel up into a raisin. Um, and I just I just find that that to be a very under-discussed. Plus, I'm actually a bit more nihilistic about the training volume thing, not to go too deep into that because we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but I'm a bit more nihilistic it, actually thinking that even what you do for your best gains and what you would do for pretty good gains would actually eventually end up in the same place, eventually reach a similar asymptote where maybe there's a bit of net to better gains. I'm not sure I'm gonna argue that point with you today, but uh, I think that it would probably end up, you'd probably end up reaching a practical limitation before a genetic limitation, a practical. I, no, I, I, okay. I fully agree. Okay. I, I, so I, I think I think if you were comparing like, yeah, like like three sets per muscle group per week to twenty. I think I think where you wind up ten years from now will probably be like considerably different places. I think if you compare like ten to twenty or like eight to thirteen or something like that, yeah, like I think that uh, uh, maybe the higher volumes will get you pretty near your genetic limits. You know, maybe in three or four years, and with the lower volumes, might take like five or six years. But I, I do think you'll wind up in a pretty comparable place, regardless. I can't pretend like I have research to cite to back that up. Like we don't have twenty-year RCTs, but that is that is my my strong supposition. Yeah, that's mine as well. It it and my only my internal bias is that it suits me at this stage in my life to feel that way. And so I think a bit about that. I think like there's a lot of people in the space right now, Jeff Alberts and, 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 uh, and Berto and, and Eric that are, uh, you know, kind of not leading this forefront of like a minimalist approach, but like all of a sudden it's like the new hotness that we're all talking about it. And it, I, I have, I am excited. I'm speaking about it constantly. One of my first speaking events, I'm super passionate about this topic, but I do think like it's a bit convenient for people that are near their genetic potential to all of a sudden be like looking back and be like, maybe I could have got here if I didn't have to do all those crazy volumes and stuff, but, um, but I, whatever, it's just a fun, fun thought experiment. I also don't have research to back that up. Just a, a supposition as well. Um, yeah, I agree if that you were, if you were, uh, comparing like a very, very low volume, if you, if you were comparing that low volume in the show of Feld meta, like the one to four, I think that that eventually volume requirements do go up, but I think they level off. They don't continue on for the long for the long haul for a number of different reasons but not 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 going to go down that rabbit hole today but I appreciate your your short insight there honestly I'm not going to lie there was a, a, a couple other things I wanted to talk to but we are coming yeah, up we, with we just we just fully didn't address the <laughs> the, the theoretical uh, goal of this podcast that's all right I, I, I'm completely I, fine with that I'm completely fine with that I'm going <laughs> to scroll through and I'm going to I'm going to pick one more a couple other things on here that we can just talk on maybe we're going to I'll direct people to the podcast for the full one actually ironically your next point would have been that maybe the general recommendation within the fitness space from a protein requirement standpoint doesn't need to be as high as you think. Luckily, luckily for us, I did a full, I did a full like summary of your guys' podcast on, on, on that, on my podcast already. So people who are listening, you guys are probably already familiar with that information, but that was a wonderful uh, segment that you guys did. I thought that that was very thought provoking. Um, TLDR is that maybe 
you don't need to have a gram per pound and maybe that's not practical for the average person who probably doesn't enjoy eating that way and probably is at slightly less risk for muscle loss because you're not getting dick skin lean uh, and you're probably going to, with enough of a training stimulus, probably be all right. I want to talk about a little bit about the common advice of eating bland food. And uh, I think essentially the idea of, hey, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, if your food doesn't taste as good, then you won't eat as much. Like, where are we balancing out what might be true there and what might be potentially, I was going to say problematic, but maybe that's a bit hyperbolic. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that that's another that's another piece of advice that makes a lot of sense for bodybuilders because um, it's, it's a, it's a pursuit where, especially when you're getting relatively close to a show, if you do ever just go off the wagon, uh, and it's like, Hey, I, I just splurged in a big way and I'm three weeks out. It's like, well, maybe there's not enough time to undo the damage to get you looking the way you want to look on stage. Like, so, Hey, if you only ever surround yourself with foods that you just wouldn't want to overeat in the first place, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a reasonable risk mitigation strategy. Um, whereas like if, if we have the goal of like losing weight and keeping it off and developing habits and eating patterns that are going to be conducive to that goal long-term, then there, there are a couple things we want to keep in mind. One, you're probably not going to want to never eat any food that's like hedonically pleasing ever again. Um, I mean, food, food is good. It's one of, it's one of the joys of life. Um, and in fact, people who find themselves in a position where they probably do need to lose quite a bit of weight. One of the reasons why is like there, there's research suggesting that like, they just enjoy food more than anyone else, which like I, I definitely think is true. Um, like if, if I, if I have something that's, that's good enough, like that's just really, really fucking good. It's like a, it's like a quasi religious experience. Like it's, it's incredible. And just talking to people who've, uh, like just always been smaller, um, you know, they, they have the same taste buds as, as anyone else, but like you, you don't hear those same sorts of experiences. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the people, yeah. The l larger people on average tend to have a, a larger, like positive hedonic response to eating. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that can contribute to, to overeating and therefore weight gain over time. Anyway, like you, you probably don't want to give that up forever. Um, and so, like uh, one one of the problem or a couple of the problems you can run into with food that that tastes really good um, is one like you you might become kind of uninhibited around it and say like hey I'm I'm just going to eat all of it uh, and just like you know completely derail your plan your progress whatever um, and unless you are just going to cut out hedonically pleasing food for the rest of your life like that is probably something that you're going to want to get under control. Um, and not just assume that once you lose the weight, you will be able to do that. So, uh, during the period of losing weight, like that's, that's not a bad time to start working on, on developing that skill. Um, and yeah, the, the other thing is, is just that like, since, since you probably won't want to cut out hedonically pleasing food forever, um, yeah, just, just as, as you're losing weight, um, figuring out how to 
still eat the things you want to eat, but in appropriate portions like that, that's just going to be a valuable skill moving forward. Um, and, and going back to like the comparison to bodybuilders, it's, it's just not, it's just not as big of a deal. If you like, like, you know, let's say, let's say that ice cream is your, is your weakness. Um, and you know, let, let's say you, uh, you get like a, a half gallon of ice cream. It's in your freezer. You just intend to get a little bowl. And then it's like, ah, I'm going to go back for another one. Going to go back for another one. And like, yeah, maybe you meant to eat 300 calories of ice cream and you ended up eating 900 or whatever. Like that's not the end of the world. Like going back to what we were talking about before, like that's, that's a good opportunity to treat it as a learning experience. Just, just try to ask yourself like, Hey, I, I, I did this thing that on its face seems counter to my goals. So like, why, why did I do that? And is there something I could do differently in the future such that I wouldn't? And that's, that's just sort of like the, the negotiation that, um, maintaining weight loss is, is going to involve for, you know, probably the rest of your life. So getting, getting some reps in, uh, early, I, I think is, is a good thing to do. Uh, and also like going back to the bodybuilding comparison, it's like, Hey, if, uh, if you do eat a lot of yummy food from time to time, and you previously wanted to lose 20 pounds in six months, and now it's going to take you eight months, like that's fine. Who cares? You know, like you're, you're still getting where you want to go. Might just take you a little bit longer. And it's, it's just different stakes than, um, needing to be 6% on stage and you roll up at 10%, which is still really fucking lean, but like not lean enough for the show, you know? So yeah, it's, it's just another, um, like just, just another like Avenue where it's, uh, it, it make, it makes sense to, to think to yourself like, Hey, what, what eating pattern uh, and, and what sorts of food inclusions and exclusions am I going to be happy and content with long term? Um, and then once you figure that out, you know, the the foods that that fall under that umbrella of I do want to keep eating these. I don't want to say lying in the sand. I'm never going to eat them again. You know, then then it just becomes a, a process of learning and growing and, and figuring out how you can eat those things in in reasonable quantities. Um and and giving yourself some grace when you don't. I think it's something that's often, I, I, as I'm thinking it in my head, I'm like, duh, this is fucking obvious, but there's an inherent benefit to either intentionally going slower or like you said, maybe your intent was to get there in four months, maybe you got there in eight months. Maybe there, maybe I, I'm, I'm not sure how, exactly how I would phrase it, but going slower by, defini by definition means that over the net period of time, you've been in a smaller a smaller deficit which means by definition, the transition to maintenance will be less of a change, which by definition might make you more successful. And again, I think that there's a whole host of reasons of like why you might be more successful going slower or you might be go more successful going faster or somewhere in the middle. But I think one of the benefits of allowing yourself to not be so hung up on that, like I need to get there by this certain date and I need to have this like real meaningful uh, rate of weight loss is that by definition, the faster you're losing weight, the larger a deficit you are. And both from a caloric standpoint, but also from a eating pattern standpoint, it's gonna it's gonna have to deviate further from what you're probably gonna have to do for the long term. I think there's a difference here. Maybe semantically, I, I could you know definition wise, I'm maybe off, but to me, this these words or this verbiage tends to to make sense to me that there's a difference between being satiated and being satisfied, and they're intimately tied. But the goal is to be satisfied, and within satisfaction is satiation is satiety, and they are. Totally. I mean, there's like a, you know, 
there's a common thing that goes around the internet that I'm sure I've like either memed about or tongue in cheek kind of said. It's like, if you're always hungry at night, you're just not eating enough during the day. And there's a portion of that that is potentially true that you're like, okay, maybe you're just like backlogging all your calories and then you're really hungry at night. And that's a pattern that you can suspect, you know, will continue. But there's also, you know, other non, you know, non-biological drives to eat. Um, and I think that there's the, the goal is, I think when you look at satiety and satisfaction, the higher goal is satisfaction, of which satiety is a significant player, but not doesn't fill all of the 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 quantities or the things that the variables that go into feeling satisfied. Like no amount of chicken and broccoli will make you stop wanting a pop tart, you know, entirely. Uh, you know, no amount of ten pop tarts will make you feel your best, but no amount of only chicken and broccoli will make you not want a pop tart. And so there needs to be some interplay between like okay eating satiating food most of the time it's going to be a good defense against hunger which might be one of my real enemies here but completely eliminating all yummy food is not a good defense against all of my non-biological drives my environmental factors just general hedonic drives to eat that i also probably need some of that at some point too and so i do need to acknowledge that there's an interplay between those yeah yeah for, for sure and and also just um yeah uh, like, so I, I think some people push it to, to such an extreme where it's just like, n- not only am I just going to have chicken and broccoli, but like, I'm not even going to roast my broccoli so that it tastes good. Like I'm just going <laughs> to, yeah. uh, like, I'm, I'm not going to like salt or season my chicken or like, if I put anything on it, it's, it's just a little bit of hot sauce. Like I, w- whatever it takes to make sure that this food is something that I, that I couldn't over overeat. And so like there, there is, you know, there, there, there is like a, a gradation here. Like if, um, and, and again, like I'm, um, I'm, I'm not like a, a mental health professional. So like, don't, don't take this as like medical advice or anything, but you know, if, if you're someone who does like, where like there, there are some foods where it's like, I, I know that I can't control myself around them. Um, you know, like if, if you have a cake in front of you, like you're just going to eat the whole cake. Um, like that, like that's the sort of thing where it's like, yeah, that's, that's probably worth talking to an RD or a psychologist or, or something like that about, um, but yeah, if, if it's like, um, if it's more, if it's more the type of thing where it's just like, if, if food tastes good at all, um, I'm afraid I I'll overeat it. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, people people derive like joy and not even just that like like food has cultural significance like um yeah like just just like normal food that tastes generally good like that that is probably what you're going to want to eat for for the rest of your life um so yeah like just yeah i i I feel like i'm just repeating myself at this point but just how however you think would be kind of good and practical and pleasing to eat long-term. Like you, you should, you should figure out how to responsibly consume those foods while you're losing weight. And, and once you can, like once you develop that skill, it's like, Hey, I can um, eat the appropriate amounts of these foods for gradual weight loss while I'm going down. Then it, it should be relatively easy to eat slightly more of those foods uh, to maintain the weight once you get there. Yep. I think that there's a general idea that there's like some sort of like hard boot camp sort of like, you know, I'm going through it like martyrdom of like not seasoning your food. Like 
your food during your calorie deficit or whatever, during your fat loss phase, or even whatever, just trying to maintain fat, you shouldn't be, you should be enjoying your food. Like there is a, I would bet direct correlation somewhere between how little you enjoy your food and the resentment for the plan that you're on and the ultimate collapse of that plan. And so it is, like you said, there's a gradation here of like, yes, eating only hyper palatable foods based solely around mouth pleasure probably isn't the most sound nutrition strategy. But again, the other extreme, certainly not the case either. And and there's nothing hard or like uh, beneficial about like just like chalking up like old baked potatoes that like don't have anything on them that just are just like paste in your mouth. So yeah, and I've seen that uh, uh, quite a bit for sure as well, but uh, like everything, a bit of a balance. So we're gonna, let, let's wrap it up there before we get down a complete rabbit hole. There's another topic that I'll wanna pick your brain about. I'll just tell you after I put this on here, maybe we can reschedule another one, but this was a ton of fun. This is my longest podcast to date, which I had a feeling it might be just because I feel like I knew we were gonna go in deep. I had no faith that we were gonna get through all of the topics here. So I'm glad we went down some rabbit holes. I'm really thrilled with what we got through. So I appreciate your time, Greg. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. I'll, uh, I'll link everything in the description that you do, all, all the stuff that you contribute to, and, and I'm sure most people already know where that is. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.